Okay, we're in. Welcome back to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith. Uh, I'm delighted that we've got what is going to be a, a fascinating cultural episode today in 1789, as the French Revolution was just getting off the ground. A retired diplomat and adventurer called Giacomo Casanova began writing a history of his life, which was left unfinished uh, at his death at 12 volumes. Uh, his biographer, Leo Damroche, uh, is with us on the show to discuss this fascinating figure and this remarkable project that he uh, concluded his, his fascinating life by producing. Um, are you well, uh, Leo, if, if I may? Yes, sir. thank you for inviting me. Um, to introduce you to our audience, um, Professor Damroche was Professor of Literature at Harvard University, uh, and today he can be found writing the biographies of the great men of the Enlightenment. We've got Jonathan Swift from you, we've got uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, we've got the club uh, that surrounded Samuel Johnson, and you've moved on to, to Casanova now uh, in, in what is a, a fabulous biography. Perhaps um, for an audience that is, is not principally a, a literary one and, and probably won't have uh, read Casanova's work, although they've, they've no doubt heard the name, could, could you sort of explain why we today in the, in the 2020s should be interested in this man from the 18th century? Well, Casanova had a notorious reputation ever since his own lifetime as a serial seducer, which he certainly was, although we can go into that more deeply. He uh, genuinely wanted to believe that the feeling was always mutual and he did not overpower somebody who was reluctant. That may not have been uniformly true. And of course, he could always move on when his various partners usually could not. Uh, nonetheless, I think he was, um, in his own lights, a sincere libertine, which was then considered a philosophical position toward life, that is not uh, accepting irrelevant taboos that society might impose, but to do what comes naturally. Uh, However, he was also many other things, and my book is called Adventurer, which as a number of recent scholars, mostly in France, have shown, was really a subclass of extraordinary con men who circulated through Europe, at least 50 are known by name. He knew most of them personally. They all knew each other. Sometimes they cooperated, sometimes they betrayed each other. Um, it was a very fluid world, the uh, late, um, aristocratic world before the revolution. Uh, and in addition, uh, he was a magus. He probably didn't really believe the uh, magic that he summoned up, but he kind of did. Uh, he was a, a gifted mathematician and actually founded the first successful national lottery in France. And that wasn't a scam at all. Uh, its survivors continue to this day and it made him rich for a while. He always frittered away his money. He was a Mason because that then very secret society was a way of connecting with privileged people all over Europe, which was important to him. Uh, he was, um, you mentioned a diplomat, he was briefly perhaps. Uh, he was a political prisoner in his native Venice, and there's a lot to say about Casanova the Venetian, spent over a year in solitary confinement in the attic prison in the Ducal Palace, that wonderful tourist site that we all visit, but up at the top, we're not the humble murderers and pickpockets, but the political prisoners. And he was the first person who ever successfully broke out of there, cutting a hole in the roof, 
um, managing to get inside, uh, getting let out by a guard who didn't understand that he had no business there, hiring a gondola, and he went into exile for 18 years before he was allowed back into Venice. And at the very end of a long, various life with all kinds of aspects to it, he became the librarian, really a sinecure, to a nobleman in Bohemia and spent his last 12 years there, miserably unhappy. And he wrote this great autobiography to try to relive when he had been this extraordinary, sexy, dashing, athletic, younger man in his youth. The other um, recent objects of your, of your biographies have been writers who had, as you've shown, very interesting lives, but also had relatively separate, discrete oeuvres, bodies of writing and work that influenced politics, literature, the world in some way, kind of autonomously um, uh, um, uh, uh, from their own personalities. Casanova was sort of the reverse. He, he, it was a life first, and, and he was a personality first, and, and sort of turned that into a body of writing, although there were many texts that you wrote in passing, none of them, um, none of them match up to the status of the, of the autobiography. Does that sort of present any particular issues as a, as a biographer, the fact that in some way it's, it's the other way around? We, we, we wouldn't be invested in Casanova if it wasn't for uh, his personal life. Well, that's actually true of many of the people I've written about. Um, Certainly not Rousseau, who was a mm -hmm. loner, a dropout from society, and whose marginal position, which included beginning as a humble lackey waiting on table, gave him deep insight into how inequality works in society and gave rise ultimately to the great social contract. But he was a writer, pretty much only. Not the others. Jonathan Swift was dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Anglican Cathedral in Dublin. Uh, he was a careerist in the church. He had wanted to have a career in politics. Unfortunately, the um, Tory party that he belonged to fell out of power and stayed there for most of the 18th century. Uh, the works we honor him for were relatively marginal in his own mind, in, in his uh, life story. Uh, and I think you could say the same of many of the people in the book that I called The Club. Um, mm -hmm. We read uh, Edmund Burke because he's a very great political thinker. But in his lifetime, he was a member of parliament and a crusader for justice in the colonies such as India. Uh, his writing was an adjunct to his professional life. Uh, in the same way, uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, just to name one more, uh, who wrote comedies that are still performed, it was a member of that club, uh, was indeed a lifelong politician and stopped writing plays as soon as he got elected to parliament and had a career there. Uh, these are all people um, well, who were not professional writers, and in those days you couldn't make a living just from writing, uh, who all had other kinds of careers. Do you see uh, Casanova's sexual exploits, um, his meetings with philosophers and political leaders and other important figures, do you see um, those uh, activities and, and his literary works as as more intertwined with each other than we would necessarily kind of think in our own time. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm tempted to, coming away from your book, I'm tempted to think of 
um, Casanova, not principally as a great lover, but rather as of sex and literature and magic and philosophy as somehow um, ways in which elites in the 18th century negotiated their relationships. I think that's that's a true insight, and I didn't even mention gambling. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a very gifted gambler with cards, and uh, that gave him uh, entree to uh, upper-class circles where he never would have been admitted. He was a humble child of a pair of actors in Venice. Uh, but um, more than that, I think uh, his writing was always, um, well, put it another way, you mentioned in passing, uh, he did publish various things in his lifetime. They were bids at writing philosophy. Uh, he was a second-rate philosopher. Uh, he knew it himself. He knew that Voltaire was far greater than himself, and he did meet Voltaire. Uh, what he actually wrote that autobiography for was entirely his personal enjoyment and self-understanding, and he didn't expect it ever to be published. And as he mentioned, he never finished it. Long as it is, he quit when he had 20 years to go because it was so depressing to think about those final years. Uh, Rousseau's autobiography, though it also was published posthumously, is meant to be uh, a declaration of a new way of thinking about oneself and about one's uh, development in society. Uh, Casanova's is much more what I got away with and how I pulled it off. And a fundamental question that every biographer asks is, how do we know how much of it to believe at all? Because usually there's no other documentary proof except what he tells us. Various facts can be corroborated, but was it what he said it was like? Did, were the other people he was involved with um, feeling it the way he felt it? Uh, there we have to guess, and of course I try to do that. There's a sort of um, sense of mourning uh, in, in Casanova's writing, not only, as you say, for his own younger self and the exploits that he was capable of when he was younger, but also for a totally different political world that seems to be slipping through uh, his fingers and the fingers of Europe as he sets out to write. What do you think the importance of the French Revolution hanging over Casanova beginning this project was? And, and what did he think of the Ancien Regime versus this, uh, this new political reality? Well, it's a fascinating question because in fact, um, though he was the quintessential bad boy, uh, his politics were very conservative. Uh, he thought established religion ought to keep the lid on because society would otherwise blow, fly apart. He himself didn't want any lid on his own life and transgressed every chance he got. Uh, but the French Revolution represented, as you say, the end of a stable era of hierarchy in which, as one of the scholars I admire said, um, he needs a hierarchy so he can climb up it. He needs there to be rules so he can violate them. Uh, and the French Revolution brought about a completely new era, which he abominated. Uh, and it was quite right, mourning for everything, not just his own lost self, but uh, the lost world in which he had felt at home. Uh, became perfectly fluent in French, lived for years and years in France, wrote the memoir in, in, in French, uh, a sense of an international culture that was now blowing itself up. Uh, but I'll just say, um, one of the scholars I most admire, Marie-Francoise Luna, who teaches at the University of Grenoble, uh, says in her big book on Casanova, it's amazing that in all that depression and defeat and self-loathing at the end of his life, he could write this hymn to joy and freedom that his autobiography really is. 
Um, you mentioned Voltaire a, a moment ago, one of the most celebrated uh, and influential philosophers of uh, the, the 18th century and, and the Enlightenment as such. Um, it, it's one of the most memorable parts of, of, uh, of Casanova's autobiography describing this, this meeting with him. And, and you, you suggest that this may be one of those times where Casanova is exaggerating uh, his own performance of, of, of one kind or another. Um, all the same, it, it's it's a very striking moment. For one, um, it's presented almost like a bedroom farce where uh, between conversations with Voltaire, Casanova is trying to orchestrate uh, an orgy. Um, but also for um, the quite, quite sophisticated conservative arguments that Casanova attributes to himself in his discussion with Voltaire, whereas Voltaire um, had uh, opposed monarchy and, 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 and traditional forms of hierarchy. Casanova makes an argument for those things that um, to a modern reader may seem to anticipate the argument found in Edmund Burke's famous attack on the French Revolution and a, 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 a document that has become the sort of foundation of modern conservatism, really. I, I wonder if you could say something to our listeners about that exchange with Voltaire and, and what you think the significance of it is. Well, there's many angles to approach that from. I don't think most 18th century thinkers would strike us as anything but conservative. They were conservative with various flavors, uh, as indeed Burke was, um, who certainly was not a total laissez-faire economics um, modern notion of a conservative. Uh, but uh, Voltaire was really not so much a philosopher as the French word philosophe, a, a public intellectual. He was a popularizer, popularized the uh, physics of Isaac Newton. He knew enough math to do that, but he was hardly a, you know important physicist. And even in philosophy, I think most people would agree, Rousseau was an original genius. He had ideas that nobody had suggested before that had enormous repercussions. Voltaire was a commentator on various kinds of abuses and a very um, admirable one, and a kind of center, you know, godfather of the Enlightenment. Most of them were younger than himself, uh, with an enormous correspondence all over Europe, uh, which was his role as a public intellectual. Uh, he was not a political radical. Um, he worked for Frederick the Great. Uh, he, he believed in kings. They just should be enlightened kings. Uh, and I think it's not so much that um, he and Casanova differed as that Casanova was out of his depth, that Casanova could see this man is probably smarter than me and certainly has created uh, a whole culture around himself where I'm just this um, loose electron, you know, moving from one atom to another and always a rolling stone. Uh, and it's no wonder. Actually, I think Casanova is pretty fair to that, what that conversation was like. You can see Voltaire is putting him down and Voltaire's entourage are all applauding him. And Casanova finally gives up and, as you say, goes and joins an orgy, which is more fun anyway. Islam has a very interesting place in the in, in the memoirs of, of Casanova. Uh, he describes um, uh, going to Constantinople um, and gives a, a portrait of, of Islam and, and of, of, of Turkey, uh, but also of um, the experiences of, of European diplomats and, and other travelers um, uh, uh, traveling in, in the East. 
Um, I mean, the, the, the moments where Casanova meets with um, the, uh, the Comte de Bonneval, um, who has converted, a, a, a Frenchman who's converted to Islam um, for career reasons. Um, and when Casanova is offered a, a Turkish wife on the condition that he converts to Islam himself, he, he refuses to meet the woman for fear that he'd be too tempted to convert to Islam. It, at moments, it reminds me of Huelbeck's submission, actually, in this, in this kind of, uh, this very interesting way in which um, Islam is both the other to Europe, but also this kind of source of temptation and, and, and almost kind of idealized as a, as a culture and a way of thinking that has um, sort of achieved enlightenment in some ways and, 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 and might have a kind of preferable sexual politics as well, uh, as far as Casanova is concerned. Well, he only was exposed to a very narrow band of the Islamic spectrum. And people have begun to realize uh, he circulated only with very westernized intellectuals in um, Istanbul, as it really was, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, had always been a major trading partner with Venice, uh, which in its glory days had controlled all commerce in the whole Mediterranean. Uh, and so to be installed in the European community in, uh, in Constantinople uh, was a way of connecting with very well-read, very thoughtful, relatively skeptical intelligences who were Muslim by birth and culture, but not necessarily in the way we would now think it's, you know, a dogmatic religion. And in fact, he was very impressed by one of his interlocutors uh, who made him think again about why the Christian Trinity makes any sense and why the, a religion of a single God must not be more philosophically true. It, it kind of staggered him. He'd been trained for the priesthood. That was a career he could have gone into. A young man without any other resources didn't have many options, and that was one. Uh, I think that was all perfectly sincere. As to the sexual freedom, well, again, that's this rather, rather narrow westernized community, uh, a normal, uh, you know, middle of the road family in Turkey would have killed somebody who tried to sleep with their unmarried daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, it was really a kind of a political uh, arrangement that was offered to him. Uh, you're a very smart guy. I can see you have lots of interesting connections in the Western world. Uh, if you marry my daughter, um, I'll be a kind of father to you and uh, we will have a career together. I think that was the, the bargain he was being offered. And he turned it down really because uh, it wasn't his culture, and he didn't speak Turkish. And in fact, he didn't like to learn foreign languages, although he wasn't bad at it, because he couldn't really be fully his own eloquent self in a language he only partly knew. He spent a whole year in England and refused to learn any English at all. So really, French, in which he was fluent, and Spanish, which is not hard for an Italian to learn, were the only languages he ever tried to learn at all. He spent a year in Russia, didn't learn a word of Russian. What about magic? Uh, it's often kind of looked back on uh, th this period as being, you know, the Enlightenment meaning um, the decline of magic, the decline of superstition and its replacement with scientific evidence and reason. But Casanova's life shows that the picture was a bit more complicated than that. It wasn't just toothless peasants who still believed in witchcraft uh, and um, uh, reincarnation and alchemy and so on. A actually, there was quite a 
pronounced elite interest, uh, and it's almost tempting to say that it was a, a growth industry and something that Casanova exploited. Could you tell us something about Casanova's dealings with magic? Yeah, um, part of it was a scam, and I'll come back to that, but part of it, as you're implying, was a kind of dark side of the Enlightenment, uh, because the modern science was still trying to define itself and to extricate itself from, for example, alchemy, which became the chemistry we all studied in school, uh, it wasn't yet clear where the boundaries were. And maybe you could, for example, transmute um, lead into gold, if only you knew the right rules. And uh, uh, when uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes said that Newton was not the first modern scientist he was the last of the magicians because at his death, Newton left a library of 200 technical treatises on alchemy because that very great yeah. physicist, which mm -hmm. he was, uh, really thought there might be something in this if we could just figure out how to make it work. Uh, but the other side, which I wanted to come back to, is the scam side. Uh, Casanova became very skilled at a, it's almost like a party game of um, making number pyramids, which if converted into the letters of the alphabet would have an oracular message to give you. And it was like fortune telling. And he would figure out what the other person wanted to hear. And then he would manipulate his number pyramid before their very eyes so quickly that it seemed like it was just falling into place literally by magic. Uh, and then they would think he must have extraordinary occult powers. And he knew perfectly well he didn't. Uh, in fact, he said there's never been such a thing as a witch, but there's certainly been people who believe in witches. Uh, and as a little boy, in fact, he had a, a nonstop nosebleed cleared by actually uh, cured by a witch uh, who put him in a box and did incantations and burned herbs. And when he came out, he was all better. And in later life, he would have said that was just suggestibility, but still it worked. And that was what he was doing like any con man does, is playing on what his audience wants to hear. Psychoanalysts have found Casanova a very uh, appealing or alluring figure uh, for uh, all kinds of reasons. Um, having spent all this time uh, with Casanova and, and with his writings, um, how useful have you come to think that such a frame is for approaching a, a figure like this and a text like this. I, I mean, that, that episode you describe where uh, Casanova is cured of this chronic um, nose breathing, right, uh, by a, a supposed witch. It, it's, it's, it's also described in quite an erotic way, that the, um, the, the, um, the, the way in which she's, she swears him to secrecy and then he's cured uh, of, of, the, of the bleeding. Um, that just seems so tempting to kind of see as uh, as comparable to episodes in Freud's case studies, where we we have this this strange early incident that is somehow kind of psychologically invested and then shows up in these different ways in his later life. It, it, is that a, a red herring as far as you're concerned? Oh, when I was young, uh, psychoanalysis um, as a uh, one of the strands of interpretation was treated almost as a science. And plenty of literary critics just um, manipulated its concepts as if they were uh, self-evident um, tools to find out the truth. Uh, one of them was a 
guy I taught at the University of California at Berkeley named Frederick Cruz. And when he stopped being a psychoanalytic critic, he wrote a book called Out of My System, in which he tried to analyze the ways the system had been kind of self-authorizing. Um, and my own view is Freud was a genius. Uh, his case studies are fascinating. Uh, I think he gave us extraordinary insights, but all the details about penis envy and death wish and, uh, and the whole Oedipal complex uh, have got increasingly suspect, I think, today. Mm -hmm. And a, a typical example in Casanova's case is uh, his mother uh, never had much interest in him. She was um, stunningly beautiful and a gifted actress. Uh, he certainly looked up to her and even kind of worshipped her. Uh, he was shipped off to a school in Padua on the mainland. He didn't even get to live at home. Then, as actors often did, his mother went on tour and never came back. He didn't see her for the next 30 years. Uh, and it's easy to say, oh, well, his lifelong pursuit of women was an attempt, you know, to finally win his mother's. Freud might have said that. I don't think it's true. He pursued women because he just adored women. He thought they were really desirable and wonderful. He also thought they were in every important way, intellectual and other, the equal to men. And women saw that in him and they found it very exciting to be taken as seriously as Casanova took them. And, and I think it helps to think about his lost mother as the reason for all this. Um, that, that, um, that description of his, of his relations with women, which um, are not, it's not, it's not as simple as the stereotype. Casanova is one of these people uh, like his contemporary Sartre, <laughs> um, who has given their name to a particular kind of sexual behaviour that doesn't necessarily bear a complete resemblance to what he actually did and how he actually saw things. So, as, as you as you say, th there is this very philosophical relationship with women. There is, uh, a, like many libertines, he um, looked down on 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 rape or or coercion or um, sort of false kinds of manipulation usually uh mm -hmm. as, as somehow beneath him um at the same time uh, as you as you describe that there's there's plenty in his life which isn't just bad in retrospect but many people would have regarded as pretty awful um behavior and, and pretty awful gender politics at the time uh, um me too has been mentioned a lot in the in the kind of promotion for this book and and uh you, you allude to uh it as a context uh, for your writing it uh we're, we're a few years after that sort of big eruption and big public conversation about um sexual conduct so i wonder how you sort of see it as, as it uh, applies to Casanova now, uh, what, what do you think the, the balance is on Casanova's sexual politics? Well, I think um, the older biographers of Casanova all vicariously got off on his conquests, as they mm -hmm. called them, and were absolutely uncritical about his behavior, and they wished they could have been him. Uh, and uh, indeed, people with great actual political power for example, Mitterrand was a tremendous fan of Casanova. Mm -hmm. uh, however, um, I think it's not uh, special pleading to say it's you cannot anachronistically impose all the standards that would apply at this moment that didn't even apply in our culture in our own lifetimes to the extent that they may now. They they you can approve of what's happened without. Um, 
just simply dismissing everybody who lived before then. Uh, and a good example is Casanova had a well-known predilection for very young girls, uh, which was not even illegal, but it certainly doesn't look very good and didn't even to some of his friends. What is this about little girls? And when he got old, his best friend said they're in his head now and he can't get them out of his head anymore. Uh, but um, that is definitely suspect. And there could have been people in his own time who might have thought that is kind of a perversion. So what I tried to do is judge each of these cases and each of these tendencies, uh, you know, as, as objectively as I can. What, what we can say that could have been said then, what we would say now and have a right to say now, uh, but without simply dismissing Casanova as somebody who no longer should be known. Um, you, you allude to Michel Foucault's um, argument that uh, prior to the 19th century, uh, sexual acts tended to be acts rather than identities in, in the way that they are for us now. And, and, and that, that does seem borne out in the homosexual affairs and experiences that Casanova describes happening it's it's not it's not for him some kind of crucial component of his sexuality or, or identity but it comes along and sometimes the attraction is there or sometimes uh, it, it's the it's the politic thing to do uh, in the moment and uh, th that there there is that that part of um the description of sexuality in the in the memoir that seems quite alien to our own. And there are also entire sexual identities which um, have been totally lost between them and now. I'm thinking of the existence of castratos in Europe, which produce, again, a very memorable and, 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 and remarkable episode in the book. Um, could you tell us about castratos? Yeah, and I might come back to your other point too. Um, it was a, a shameful uh, looking the other way by the Catholic Church, which made female performers illegal, not just in the papal states, but in several other large areas in Italy, uh, so that if you wanted soprano voices, uh, what you needed was a, either a young boy like a choir boy who had not yet reached puberty, but if you wanted a big, full voice, you wanted somebody who had been not necessarily castrated. Um, they might have had their tubes tied. It's not quite clear. Uh, some of them may have actually been perfectly capable sexually. Uh, it was probably not the case that they had all been literally castrated. But at any rate, they'd been interfered with. And when they were too young to make a, you know, informed decision uh, before puberty, and if they were lucky, and Casanova knew some who were, they became uh, matinee idols all over Europe, uh, often performed in London in the 18th century. But most of them just ended up in church choirs and, you know, with a kind of um, depressed life uh, and certainly couldn't have children. Uh, but what's interesting in Casanova's story is he uh, fell in love with somebody who was passing as a castrato, but he was pretty sure, and it turned out he was right, was actually a girl, which she was doing because that way she could perform in the papal states. Uh, but it was clear what really... Uh, obsessed him was this gender indeterminacy, which was not uncommon in Venice, where everybody dressed up for 
half the year was the um, carnival. It wasn't just a Mardi Gras. Uh, and uh, she just had to know what was really going on under her clothes. And of course, she didn't want to show him because her profession was at stake. And she said, when you do find out, you're not going to want me anymore. It's the ambiguity that interests you. I think that's all true. Uh, so uh, as for the homosexuality, you're absolutely right. And I think Foucault was right. Um, it was just something some people did. It didn't make you a homosexual. And sometimes, as you say, he did it because it was convenient. Uh, at least once in Russia, he was very clearly attracted to a handsome young army officer and really went along with it because he was interested. But most of the time, he preferred women. And um, his best friend that I mentioned before in later life read his memoir and manuscript and said, I don't understand why you kept refusing these guys who came on to you. You know, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's a kind of um, polymorphous life. Uh, he liked affairs with nuns again because they're brides of Christ and yet they're cheating on the Almighty and, and you know, he's the bad boy. Uh, any way he could to kind of um, violate conventional mores was what he wanted. The uh, the episode with Bellino, um, uh or Teresa, uh, Teresa is pretending to be a castrato um, Bellino in order to um, have a, a musical career. Th that is a, a remarkable bit of literature, and it's just one of those moments in, in reading the, the memoir uh, where one almost wants to put aside any kind of questions about whether it's true or not, or how true it is, because it's it's a beautifully constructed piece of comedy, whether real or not. And, and, and well, in some ways, it's the kind of comedy that can only come about in real life. The, the fact that he, he is insisting that he's convinced that this castrato must actually be a woman in disguise, uh, and how does he know that? Well, because his desire tells him so. I, I want you like a woman, and therefore a woman you must be. She goes as far as to show him uh, her penis, which he sees briefly, um, and um, as proof that oh, I am actually a, a man. But still, um, he believes his desire more than he believes uh, his own eyes. Um, and then finally, this in this kind of way, that seems to have been true through so much of his young life, it's almost as if reality kind of bends round his desire and, and, and allows him to kind of win in this situation. Oh, actually, uh, this was a, a false penis <laughs> that, uh, that she wore. It was a, it was a prosthesis. A yes. prosthe yeah, in, in order to get through the exa examination by the priest to check that she actually is a, yep. a castrato. And yeah, sure enough, they, they make love uh, 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 and, uh, and so on. Um, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful example of how Casanova seemed to be trying to write an experience of life where it just seemed like, as I say, everything bent around his desire. What was it, it, it? It's it's he's almost like a cartoon character, kind of stepping out onto a, you know, a sheer drop, and a, a kind of bridge of flowers just appears beneath him. Well, one sheer drop really existed. I'll come back mm -hmm. to your point, and that is when he got himself up on the roof of the ducal palace, mm -hmm. which is uh, sheathed in lead. Uh, it had to be in the darkness of night. It was covered with dew. It's a quite sloping roof. Uh, you could very easily slide down it. Then it's several stories down to a stone courtyard where you would die. 
And he'd figured out there was a dormer window partway down that if he could wiggle into that, he could get inside the palace and come down by a staircase. But as he was trying to do so, he slid and ended up, he was very athletic and strong, hanging by his elbows from the gutters over the void. And his arms started to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And he had to wait until he could revive himself enough to crawl back up. And it was his life was um, taking the ultimate risk. Uh, it, it's life or death, you know, it's a bigger thrill than just uh, winning a hand of cards. Uh, he fought a duel in Poland with a crack shot, and he was the one who wounded the other guy worse than he himself was wounded. And they became best friends because he had fought a duel and showed that he was a gentleman. Uh, his life is full of these test cases. Uh, as to, um, you know, imagination creating reality, I believe the Bellino story or Teresa because um, it's quite humiliating to him. Uh, it shows him in somebody else's thrall and being jerked around by feelings mm -hmm. he does not command. Uh, and uh, he wouldn't, I think, tell us that story in the way he did uh, if he wasn't trying to tell what it felt like to him. Uh, and briefly, another such story is an uh, extended affair he had with a nun in Venice whom he calls M.M. and her identity mm -hmm. has never been traced. Um, who uh, came from a noble family and I guess had some money secretly and would slip out of her convent and take a gondola to a place uh, on the island of Murano where she had a little love nest and spend the night with him. And he finds out partway through that her actual lover is the French ambassador to Venice, who in the conventions of those days literally ended up a cardinal in Rome. Uh, and that guy... Uh, was watching them through a peephole. And instead of being, you know, offended or angry, Casanova was delighted. I, I'm, I'm, he's going to watch me do what I do best. Uh, and they became good friends too. Uh, but the reason I'm telling this story is he saw after it all ended, I was being used. I was their puppet. This noble woman who had to be a nun and her boyfriend, who was a very highly placed French aristocrat, and they wanted to set me up. Uh, so again, I don't think he would tell it. Uh, it's not a conquest. He was the one conquered and used. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'll give you one last example. It's not going on too long. No, no, absolutely When not. he was in Grenoble, he was traveling around. He not only uh, made a killing on that French lottery, but he had uh, the most disgraceful act of his life, I think, had scammed a very, very rich woman out of an enormous fortune because she actually believed he could bring her back from the dead and reincarnate her with his magic. And it, she had that idea before she ever met him and he realized I can use this. Uh, but it was very cynical and cruel, I think, of him. Uh, well, he was traveling with all this money he'd got out of her and he was in Grenoble and he met a beautiful young woman who wasn't very interested in sleeping with him, but he, uh, her mother liked astrology and he did some um, horoscopes for them and found that if she went to Paris before the end of that calendar year, she would become the mistress of King Louis the Fifteenth, but it would be too late if she didn't. And I heard Frisius to say, "Boy, he was right. She did become. Wow, <laughs> it, it, it worked." Uh, but an uh, Australian friend of mine, a very good historian, he read my book and he said, "Well, you can see what happened. Uh, she did go to Paris. She did become the king's mistress. Then he told a backstory that never happened about how he prophesied it." Uh, so that's a perfect example where we can put our finger on it. Yes, he made reality come out to suit himself. 
But on the whole, I think he wanted to tell the truth. He he kept uh, not exactly a diary, but elaborate notes all his life, traveled with them. He wanted to keep his whole life on paper so he wouldn't lose any of it. Uh, a customs officer in Spain opened his trunk and it was two thirds full of notebooks. That was what he was carrying around with him. And he had them when he wrote the memoir of his life. So I think in his own way, he was trying to tell the story as he lived it. Well, yeah, I feel that that is, that is the other sort of crease here. It's not only that through Casanova's eyes, um, sex, philosophy, politics, and the negotiation of hierarchies are all part of the same dynamic and require the same set of skills. There's also this conviction that all experience can be put into writing. And there's not, I mean, anyone who... who starts pulling on the threads of, uh, of 18th century writing, we'll soon see quite how elaborate um, the available modes for describing sexual experiences were. But all the same, there, there's, there's so much in, in Casanova that is, that is jaw-dropping and, and, and beautiful and, and, and sensitive and amazing writing of seduction um, and eroticism. So, yeah, I mean, that image of, of him crossing the border with suitcases full of papers is, uh, is, a, great, um, is a great image for the whole Casanova ethos, I think. Yeah, and the um, conventional pornography of the 18th century, which has been much studied, um, was, it was extremely conventional. I mean, it mm -hmm. was formulaic and it's not arousing at all. And I doubt if it was very much then. Mm -hmm. uh, what is remarkable in his account of his erotic experiences, and he describes at least a hundred, uh, is each is different. The woman is different. The situation is different. What their relationship to each other is different. There was one case where a woman traveling in incognito, a French woman who'd run away from her abusive husband, he actually falls deeply in love, only time in his life. Uh, it was just a, a transcendent experience for him. He says, uh, someone who doesn't believe uh, that you can spend 24 hours in total happiness with a woman and you don't have to be in bed has never known an Henriette. And mm. then one day she just said, it's over. We're never going to see each other again. I'm going back to my husband. If he could have had a broken heart, that would have done it. Uh, he tells us that story too. He doesn't hide it. Yeah, I, I can't help wondering, uh, and it, it comes up, up a lot of times in your book, these moments where Casanova admits he was the dupe or admits he was used in some way. Um, and, and you tend to take that as evidence for authenticity. Um, I came away feeling like maybe that was kind of a big part of his psychology too, that there was a, there was a pleasure in getting the better of people, but also almost a kind of pleasure in having been the object. In ha that's the thing about libertines. They are constantly replacing uh, their objects of enjoyment uh, one day to the next, but they are also kind of such a surrogate, such a replacement. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a sort of double-sidedness to Yeah, that's, to that's a very good insight. I would agree with that. Um, and it's certainly true. I don't know if it could have lasted much longer with Henriette. Maybe it's just as well that it didn't, but he never stayed with any single woman for the rest of his life for any length of time at all. The very end, there was somebody who was more like a servant in, Cast in, in Venice when he was there and toward the end. Mm. But that was not a love affair. That was just convenient. Uh, and um, it's true. He could not be tied down. Uh, he was a rolling stone. And uh, I think he admired women who were rolling stones, too. 
Well, not everyone is going to get through the the whole 12 volumes, uh, although I mean to one day. Uh, but in the meantime, the thing to read is Adventurer, The Life and Times of Giacomo Casanova by Leo Damrosch, which uh, is uh, a, an absolutely, well, it's an absolute riot to read, I have to say, as well as being a, a masterful work of historical reconstruction. Leo Damrosch, we can't thank you enough for joining us on The Popular Show. Thank you so much, James. And may I say a pleasure to be interviewed by somebody who has read and thought about my book instead <laughs> of describing it to the void. <laughs> Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.